0: Many of the states bordering Illinois have Indian reservations. Wisconsin is home to the Potawatomi, Ojibwe, Ho-Chunk, Menominee, and Oneida Nations, among others. In Michigan, you'll find the Potawatomi, Ojibwe, and Odawa, and in Iowa, the Sac and Fox. But there are no reservations in Illinois, yet all around Illinois, there are hundreds of daily reminders that we are living on land once inhabited by Native Americans. You see it in the name of towns, streets, rivers, and sports teams. Even the name Chicago comes from the word the Miami and Illini people gave to the wild onions growing all around the shores of Lake Michigan. So why aren't there any Indian reservations in Illinois? I'm Curiosity's City's Jason Mark, Understanding the answer to this question requires a look back at the region's history from the 1700s through the 1830s. It's a period marked by armed conflicts, treaty negotiations, and a U.S. government determined to push out Native people. Coming up, three Native Americans, two of whom were professors, the other a chairman of a Potawatomi band, tell us the story of how the indigenous people of Illinois lost their lands and their decades-long fight to have their histories and contributions to this area recognized.
2: Our creation stories tell us that uh, there was a great flood. The world essentially emerged then on the back of a turtle, so we live on Turtle Island. My name is John Lau, and I'm an associate professor at the Ohio State University at the Newark campus. I'm also a proud citizen of the Pokagon Band of Potawatomi Indians. Our ancestral lands went from Door County, up in Wisconsin, down through what's now known as Chicago, down through Illinois. And then that swath went over uh, towards uh, following somewhat closely the uh, Michigan-Indiana state line, over to Detroit, and then down into the Maumee River Valley of Ohio. So we uh, were a very uh, strong tribe with a lot of uh, territory.
3: There was an abundance of game animals there where, where you could go and hunt and fish, deer, fish, you know, even bison. All of those animals, the land, the trees, the things that grow, we're all connected to that. Part of our belief is, is that the creator put a lot of those things in place for us to survive and to live off of, as long as we show respect to those things that we use and take. My name is uh, Joseph Rupnick. I'm the chairman for the Prairie Band Potawatomi Nation.
1: You know we're not monolithic. We didn't all attack the cavalry on horseback with you know a feather in the back of our head in the 1850s. Some of us were fisher folks. Some of us were farmers. You know some were hunters and gatherers, and we represent all kinds of traditions and we have different languages and customs. My taxpayer name is Patricia Lowe and my Ojibwe name is Waswa Kanokwe. It means torchlight on the water woman. I am a professor in the Medill School of Journalism, and I direct the Center for Native American and Indigenous Research here at Northwestern. Native people had a relationship with land. I mean, you talk to people in the Menominee Nation and they'll say, we are the forest. You talk to people in my community and we'll say, you know, we are the wild rice. We have such an intimate relationship with the plants and animals, the other than human beings in our communities. In
0: 1803, the Potawatomi were the dominant tribe in the Chicago area, with the Ho-Chunk, Sauk, and Fox farther to the north and the west. That year, the United States bought 828,000 square miles of land from France. It was known as the Louisiana Purchase, and it extended from the Mississippi River to the Rocky Mountains. At that point, President Thomas Jefferson began the process of moving indigenous people west of the Mississippi, including the native peoples in northern Illinois and southern Wisconsin.
2: Illinois was uh, just too good of a land uh, to bother to share with Indian peoples, and so we all got removed. The Indians that are in Michigan, Wisconsin, and uh, Minnesota, for instance, are primarily in the northern parts of the state that were clear cut for their timber, mined for their copper and iron.
1: The geography of Illinois was such that it was conducive to farming and mining, and its value as a as a port. I think that's the difference between Illinois and, say, Minnesota, Wisconsin, or Michigan, where um, the land was heavily timbered and much more difficult to settle for farming and other and other uses. Farming was never going to be a huge industry in the northern part of the state of Wisconsin where you find Indian nations today. This area was identified as a land really rich in resources, particularly lead. And if you remember you're from your history, the British still had a pretty big presence here, especially in the Great Lakes region. So the Americans were nervous about ammunition. They wanted the lead mines that were in this lead-producing region in western Illinois.
2: They wanted to dispossess us with honor, they called it. And that honor was that they would chip away and piecemeal our lands away from us rather than fighting a war over it. They would go through villages and they would find somebody willing to sign a treaty. And uh, so the federal government didn't bother itself with worrying about uh, always whether these were the recognized leaders of the tribes. The bottom line is we're taking the land. The land is going to go.
3: This is an opportunity for you to negotiate your best deal. I think it was either, you know, sign this treaty, give up this land or die.
1: that whole concept of communal usage of land versus individual private property is really a foreign concept. The Indian leaders are saying, well, you talk about these lines. You're asking us to identify the lands that are ours. It's not ours. You know, we, we don't own it.
0: In 1830, Congress passed the Indian Removal Act.
3: President Andrew Jackson's policy was, you know, Indian removal, and they wanted to get as many Indians out of there and remove them as far away as they could, basically to say, you know, kick them west of the Mississippi and let them be somebody else's problem.
0: The act forced tens of thousands of Native Americans from their homes in the east to lands west of the Mississippi River. Of course, there was confusion and anger over the policy because of the treaty signed prior to 1830 that specifically allowed Native people to stay on their land. One Sauk warrior named Black Hawk challenged this policy of pushing Native Americans out of Illinois. He led some of his people from Iowa back across the river trying to reclaim their land.
1: Black Hawk was a war chief and... I think he'd had enough of the U.S. government and they had planted corn and wanted to go and harvest their corn. When his band was told to get out of Illinois, Black Hawk refused and led the U.S. military and the Illinois militia on an odyssey that ended badly at the Bad Axe massacre near La Crosse, Wisconsin.
3: My fourth great-grandfather, Chief Shawnee. During the Black Hawk Wars, he went and warned the settlers in that area that Black Hawk was coming through, and that he asked them to leave or vacate the area. He had uh, become what was called the friend of of the settlers in Illinois. Earlier in his life, he was a war chief. He did fight, you know, against the Americans, the British, and everybody else. I think after 60 years of fighting, was finally tired of it. And maybe it was an act of survival to say, let's try and see if we can live peacefully together and see what we can retain and hang on to.
0: We'll be right back. The Black Hawk War intensified the fear and hatred that many white settlers felt toward the region's indigenous people. The idea of moving Native Americans west of the Mississippi seemed to take on new urgency, and tribal leaders found they had few options at the negotiating table. Which leads us to September 1833. The U.S. government called thousands of Potawatomi, Odawa, and Ojibwe to gather in Chicago. Under pressure from U.S. officials, the Native Americans signed the Treaty of Chicago, surrendering 5 million acres of land in northeast Illinois and southeast Wisconsin.
1: And, of course, the Native people often didn't understand the terms that the U.S. negotiators were using. It's a really coercive process.
2: The federal government brought in the barrels of whiskey before the uh, negotiations started and got uh, all the Indians uh, liquored up. And uh liquored up Indians aren't uh the best negotiators. <music> Leopold Pokagan had gone there. He was a signer of the Treaty of 1833, he was a teetotaler, he kept uh the Pokagan Potawatomi camp away from the other Indian camps and away from the whiskey uh Uh, wagons, and as a result, he was able to negotiate an exemption for the Pokagon Potawatomi, and that's why we didn't get removed, and that's why we're in southwest Michigan and northwest Indiana to this day. We're the closest federally recognized Indian tribe to Chicago. We're about 60 miles away. That's only because we had a very wise uh, leader of the time.
0: While they allowed Pokagan's band to remain, federal troops forced most of the other Potawatomi to march west.
2: They started in Indiana over by uh, Twin Lakes, Chief Menominee's village. The federal militia had come to uh, Menominee's village and said, oh, we've got a big surprise for you. Please uh, assemble at the church on a certain day and time. And they did, and the federal soldiers surrounded the church and started marching them west. That was the big surprise for them. And then as they moved west, they swept up whatever uh, Potawatomi Indians there were in other parts of Indiana and Illinois and cleaned out the whole area. There are newspaper reports from the time that uh, most of the uh, people were made to walk. And when they walked through Springfield, Illinois, the white people came out and it was such a sad and pitiful sight, the newspapers report, that the white people cried for the Indians. Uh, It was so distressing. People died along the way, particularly the uh, sick, the old, and the uh, very young infants, babies. And they oftentimes wouldn't allow people to even stop and do a burial um, that you just had to keep moving. And uh, so it becomes a death march.
3: Some of those, while they were in route, escaped. Some of them went back up north, hid in the forest, and eventually those ones there Uh, establish their own reservation in those different areas. For the Prairie Band, uh, we eventually wound up in Council Bluffs, Iowa. My great-grandfather was born there. We tried to establish a reservation there. The government just signed a treaty with the Osage Nation uh, in Kansas, and that land became available. And um, with the help of one of our interpreters, uh, Billy Caldwell, Negotiated the treaty for us here in 1846 where we eventually occupied this land.
0: Billy Caldwell. You might know that name. There's Caldwell Avenue on Chicago's northwest side and the Billy Caldwell Golf Course. Caldwell was a mixed-race person, and Chicagoans will be familiar with his Indian name because it's the name of a northwest side neighborhood, Sauganash, Caldwell plays another important role in this story, because while it's true that there are no Indian reservations in Illinois, some treaties did include land grants that reserved pieces of Illinois land for a handful of Native Americans. He got 1,600 acres in an area now known as Caldwell Woods on Chicago's far northwest side, later selling off most of it. Another land grant went to French trader Antoine Ouilmet and his Pottawatomie wife, Archange. Their land was where the suburb of Wilmette is today, but eventually they were forced out as white settlers continued to flood the area. Joseph Rupnik's ancestor, Chief Chabonet of the Prairie Band Pottawatomie Nation, negotiated for around 1,200 acres of land for his people in DeKalb County. Chauvinet lived there for a time, but he'd also go west to visit the tribe's reservations in Iowa and Kansas. And during one trip, the U.S. government claimed he abandoned the land and sold it off to white settlers.
3: He didn't abandon it. And, you know, to kind of further back up that claim, once those white settlers were squatting on his land, he actually tried to sell it. And it went all the way up to the president where they said, no, you can't sell that. This is your land by treaty. But he couldn't occupy it again because of everybody else that was living on there. He fought for that land his whole time. My grandparents fought for that land. My mother, who was chairman, fought for this land too.
0: And so we've been uh, trying to battle this for, you know, 170 years. In 2006, the Prairie Band Potawatomi Nation bought around 130 acres of land near Shabona, a town that's named for Chief Shabonet in north-central Illinois. In addition to the legal components, there's also a spiritual aspect to any potential return of the land.
3: You know, there are a lot of grave sites that are up in that area, too. And we're specifically looking at, you know, can we um, intern them back on some of the ground that we have, or possibly identify some graves where uh, Shodney's land was. Hopefully, we can get some of our ancestors' uh, remains interned.
0: Over the years, other Potawatomi have argued that they have a claim on Chicago's lake shore. Much of the land we see today on the city's lakefront was added as landfill over the past 150 years. So, when the Potawatomi signed away their land in 1833, they didn't sign away that land.
2: We never seeded the lake. We never seeded the lake bed. If you dump a bunch of stuff into it and make it uh, dry, uh, we never seeded that. And we'd like our uh, lakefront, or at least an acknowledgement that it is Potawatomi land. The Supreme Court, in a very uh, short decision, made a curious remark of, they surely must have abandoned it by now. We never abandoned it. I don't know what we were expected to do. Keep canoes out there 24-7. It didn't make any sense. How can you abandon land that is covered by water?
0: In recent years, there have been attempts to call attention to what we've been talking about here, that Illinois was once populated by Native Americans and that they were forced out. They're called land acknowledgements. Places like Steppenwolf Theater, the Newberry Library, and Northwestern University post these land acknowledgements on their websites, in their buildings, or announce them at the beginning of events.
1: If it's just words that are... Recited before a gathering of some kind, um, you know, I don't think that anybody really finds that meaningful. But if land acknowledgements lead to conversations between indigenous people of that area and um, the, you know, settler communities that have emerged on that land, then I think it can be a really good thing.
2: It's fine to say, I'm on the land of somebody, but we shouldn't be living guilt-free on stolen land, right? Um, And the point is not to make everybody guilt-ridden. The point is to uh, promote truth and reconciliation. And reconciliation comes through that idea of, well, how can we make things right? How can we make amends uh, for the taking of those lands? And it's never too late to make amends.
0: City is more than just a question and answer machine. It's a space where Chicagoans and the people who love the city come together and learn about each other from each other. A space to recognize the importance of diverse communities in creating this unique place we call home. And you could take a more active role by sending us your questions about Chicago and the region. Do that by going to wbez.org slash Curious City and tell your friends Thanks to Robert Lorizel for his extensive reporting and for conducting the interviews with John Lau, Patty Lowe, and Joseph Rupnik for this story. Thanks also to historian Anne Durkin Keating, author of Rising Up from Indian Country, The Battle of Fort Dearborn and the Birth of Chicago, for her help with this episode. And thanks to Nate Steinfeld for asking his question about why there are no Indian reservations in Illinois. If you want to learn more about the history we covered on today's episode, we've got a list of books and resources to check out on our website at wbez.org slash Curious City. is produced by me and Joe Deseau. Adriana Cardona-Magigat is our reporter, and Maggie Sivet is our digital and engagement producer. J.P. Swenson is our luminary fellow, and Johanna Zorn edits the show. I'm Jason Mark. Thanks for listening.